This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a very special guest on today's show. That would be Lowell Bergman, the award-winning investigative reporter and correspondent slash producer for both Frontline, The New York Times, and 60 Minutes. We aired our interview with Mr. Bergman on another venue last week, but uh, it is a quality interview, and we are keen to bring it to you, the listening audience here at KDVS. And, of course, the numerous uh, stations which rebroadcast this program. Lowell Bergman has been an editor at Rolling Stone. He was the director of investigative reporting at ABC News and is perhaps best known to you listeners as uh, the guy that Al Pacino portrayed in the movie The Insider. Mr. Bergman is currently an adjunct professor at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism, and we're very pleased to bring him to you today on this show, which this will take place in segment two. And the topic of our discussion with Mr. Bergman is international gun running. His 2002 frontline special, Gun Runners, is considered a milestone in this area, and we also talk a bit about the current state of journalism in America. And there's still several days to go left on uh, the California State Fair over at Cal Expo. We have a fantastic exhibit we need to tell you about because I'm certain that a lot of you listeners out there are going to want to see the Science on a Sphere exhibit. We will uh, speak with meteorologist Alyssa Lynn about that in our third segment today. We're very pleased to also note that on next week's program, we're going to have Ira Flato, the host of NPR's Science Friday. He'll be talking about his new book, Present at the Future, From Evolution to Nanotechnology, Candid and Controversial Conversations on Science and Nature. Of course, we're going to have to ask him about that title, From Evolution to Nanotechnology, uh, Controversial Conversation? We should probably use our quote of the day at this point, which comes from former UC Davis geneticist Theodosius Dobzhansky, who once said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Dr. Dobzhansky was, uh, was here along with G. Ledyard Stebbins, another celebrated name in biology at UC Davis uh, back in the 1970s. And they are two of the major names in, uh, in evolutionary biology, the men that basically rectified Gregor Mendel with Charles Darwin and gave us our modern outlook on how evolution works. All right, let's commence with uh, on this date in history, which in our case today is August 30th. On August 30th in the year 30 BC, Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt and lover of both Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, took her own life following the defeat of her forces against Octavian, the future Caesar Augustus. Although she was closely guarded, Cleopatra evidently arranged to have a poisonous snake snuck into her in a basket of fruit. At least that's the legend. We do know that Octavian had planned to put her on display in Rome in a cage, and so uh, the Queen of Egypt elected for death over dishonor. On August 30th, 1146, European leaders convened to outlaw the crossbow in the hope that by banning the weapon, wars would end. Unfortunately, crossbows continued to be irresistible to the powers that be, and... Uh, remained uh, used by everyone up until they were replaced by firearms in the 16th century. Which did remind me of a tour of a castle in Italy back when I was 16 years of age when uh, the guide pointed out a crossbow on the wall and said to us, crossbow, like an atom bomb in medieval times. 
Everybody say they don't want to use it, but everybody want to have one. All right, August 30th, 1881, Clement Adler of Germany patented the first stereo system. And finally, on August 30th, 1922, the Tiger Rag, one of the world's most familiar American ragtime jazz tunes, was recorded by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Quip of the day comes from the humorous Albert Hubbard, that's opposed to Elron Hubbard, who once said, the recipe for perpetual ignorance is, be satisfied with your opinions and content with your knowledge. Our joke of the day is as follows. An old man had a pond at the back of his property with some nice fruit trees around it, and one day he took a bucket to go down to pick some of the fruit, and when he got close, he heard some strange noises. As he neared the pond, he noted that five young women had apparently parked their car at the side of the road nearby, climbed his fence, and they were skinny-dipping in his pond. When uh, the women saw the old man, they stopped their frolicking and splashing and swam to the deep end and said, uh, We're naked. We're not going to come out until you leave. Well, the old man kind of frowned and looked at him and said, Well, I didn't come down here to make you get out of the pond, and I certainly didn't come down here to watch you ladies swim naked. Holding up the bucket, he said, I just came down here to feed the alligator. Our statistic of the day comes from the Associated Press, which notes that one in four American adults did not read any books last year. Reading more than zero but less than six books were 41% of the population. 31% of Americans read between six and 15 books, and 27% say they read more than 15 books. And no, we do not know where George W. Bush fits into all that. We do, however, have our suspicions. All right, and from the viewer mail department, we have a great letter we've been saving for a couple weeks. We mentioned, I think, about three weeks ago that it was the uh, historical anniversary of the Battle of Adrianopolis. And we enjoy the following letter by Steve in response to it. Said Steve, as an avid student of Roman history, I'd like to respectfully disagree with you on the Battle of Adrianopolis, on which I wrote a research paper. Though my primary focus was not strategy tactics, I got pulled into making comments by the work of a couple of scholars I stumbled onto who say nay to the Gothic super-cavalry story. As we reported a few weeks back, according to most historians, the superiority of the Gothic cavalry led uh, to the, uh, the defeat of the Roman legions and the superiority of uh, people relying upon and Europeans relying upon horsemen for a millennial afterwards. Steve went on, the story of the battle has the morbid ring of a Greek tale of hubris. Of course, it all began with the Roman cruelty to the Goths, which set the stage. Anyway, the emperor of the east was supposed to wait for the emperor of the west. They would combine forces and attack the Goths. But the eastern emperor was suffering from very low poles, he was very insecure, and flattering advisors convinced him he could win a great victory all by himself and be popular in Constantinople. Steve went on. His army marched 12 miles to the Gothic camp on a brutally hot August day. Fighting broke out spontaneously between Romans and Goths, 
When the Romans were approaching, the Gothic cavalry was away foraging. The Goth commander immediately sent riders to find them. The cavalry returned, arriving on a hill overlooking the battlefield. Their timing was perfect. Fate was with them. They charged down the hill, and the slaughter began. Steve then noted that he believes that the superiority of the Gothic cavalry was a myth. They were just lucky. And he noted finally, a century and a half later, Justinian would send Belisarius to North Africa with maybe 20,000 armored cavalry. They would face a huge Vandal infantry army and slaughter tens of thousands while suffering a few hundred casualties. He noted, of course, the Vandals weren't what they used to be. Anyway, we trust you, dear listener, to make up your own mind about whether the superiority of cavalry was dependent upon uh, the inherent advantage of armed horsemen or whether they were just lucky that day. And if any military historians out there want to sound off on uh, what advantage the stirrup gave to cavalry, well, let, let us know. Send us an email at info at radioparallax.com because we love this stuff. And Stephen, thank you. And speaking of uh, military matters, we want to return to this item from page A8 of the August 11th Sacramento Bee. Story titled, Bush Aid, Draft Needs Fresh Look. We talked about this a few weeks back. It's worth uh, talking about it again, particularly in light of the, uh, the article in, on MSNBC.com, also in Newsweek. It was titled, Why We Need a Draft, A Marine's Lament. In the article, Corporal Mark Finelli says... The real failure of this war, the mistake that has led to all of the malaise of Operation Iraqi Freedom, was the failure not to reinstitute the draft on September 12, 2001. But President Bush was determined to keep the lives of non-uniformed America, the wealthiest Americans like himself, uninterrupted by the war. Consequently, we have a severe talent deficiency in the military, which the draft would remedy immediately. While America's bravest are in the military, America's brightest are not. Allow me to build a squad of the five brightest students from MIT and Caltech and promise them patrols on the highways connecting Baghdad and Fallujah, and I'll bet that in six months they could render IEDs about as effective as a Just Say No campaign at a Grateful Dead show. Colorful language, but an argument we find wanting. I say that because I was in the last group of teenagers here in America who went through a draft lottery that meant something. I know a lot of well-meaning people have said to me, you know, we ought to bring back the draft. That way our policymakers, you know, with their children uh, at risk over in foreign wars, would be very careful about what uh, engagements they got us into. Well, wrong. As you are no doubt aware, the man who currently labels himself the President of the United States did manage to find a way not to serve in the draft. He joined the National Guard, thanks to the fact that his father, George Herbert Walker Bush, was then a congressman from Texas. A lot of folks, including some people that are involved with the production of this program, uh, wanted to get into the National Guard rather than take their chances in the unpopular war going on at that time in Vietnam. But if your daddy was not a congressman, that wasn't so easy to arrange. By and large, whether you have a draft or not, the children of the rich and powerful in this country are not going to be on the front lines. That's just the way it is. Far from discouraging military adventurism, having the best and the brightest of America's colleges uh, available to draft boards around this country will only encourage more warfare around the globe. Trust me on this one. Corporal Finelli said, I don't favor a Vietnam-style draft where men like the current vice president could get five deferments. 
I'm talking about a World War II draft with the brothers and sons of future and former presidents answering the call. Well, nice idea, Corporal. Ain't gonna happen. He closed by noting, Young Americans, you may not want to kill jihadists, but they are interested in killing you and your loved ones. Wake up. The, uh, the author of this essay apparently survived 9-11. He was an investment broker working in downtown Manhattan when the planes hit the Twin Towers. Uh, you know, I respect what he's gone through. I respect his opinion, but he's wrong on this one. The jihadists who arranged the September 11th attacks are currently occupying uh, caves and hideouts somewhere along the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. They are not in Iraq. They never were in Iraq. Let's quote from the New York Times article uh, from uh, several soldiers of the 82nd Airborne. Writing an editorial what was described as a joint column, they noted, We are not optimistic that the surge will succeed. Recent claims that our troops are taking control of the battlefield are, at best, naive. It's true that we've chased some of the bad guys from Baghdad and Anbar province, but a crowded roster of enemies, including Sunni extremists, Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, Shiite militias, and armed gangs keep popping up wherever our troops are not, wreaking bloody havoc. The Iraqi army remains under the control of Shiite militias, and the Shiites who now run Iraq believe that after decades of Sunni oppression, the country is rightfully theirs. They will never accede to U.S. demands that they truly share power. The Iraqi people, meanwhile, are furious after four years of horrific daily bloodshed and blame Americans for substituting Ba'ath Party tyranny with a tyranny of Islamist, militia, and criminal violence. The only prudent option left is to give Iraq back to the Iraqis. Anyone who thinks a draft is going to fix things in Iraq is just, they're just dreaming. I remember that uh, very grim day when, as a student here at this university, I returned back to my residence at uh, Emerson Hall to find everybody taking a look at uh, the draft numbers as they were being pulled out of a hat. My most indelible memory is that of uh, Mark Hamilton, a wrestler here at uh, UCD, who was shouting exuberantly, I won! I won the lottery! His number was number four, which meant being drafted was a certainty. Up to about 70 or 80 was considered, it would be a certainty you'd be drafted. Between 80 and 120 was less so. But I remember he was being so, uh, so cavalier and, and, and laughing about it, but he said, I don't care. I'm going to go on my mission for my church, and that's what I'll do the next year or two. He was, of course, a Mormon. And according to the rules in, in operation at that time, your Mormon missionary two years of service counted as the equivalent of being drafted. I have noted uh, with a rather jaundiced eye ever since that the Mormons in the Senate and Congress of the United States tend to be very hawkish in their advocacy of using the big stick diplomacy around the world, I think in part because their youth were never out there getting shot at like the rest of America. That was my understanding, and if I'm wrong about that, again, please send us a letter at info at Radio Parallax, and we'll see if we can clear that up. And we'll try in the next week or two to see if we can clear up the issue of the Mormon senator from Idaho, Larry Craig, who is now saying, I'm not gay. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I did plead guilty to disorderly conduct in a men's room in an airport, and I, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I thought I would just, you know, get things behind me that much quicker. Now, the details of what exactly happened between the undercover police officer and the senator uh, are still somewhat obscure. 
Actually, no, Mr. McMillan is informing me that, uh, no, the report from the undercover officer is out. (laughs) It says in the police report, the officer said Senator Craig engaged in actions, quote, often used by persons communicating a desire to engage in sexual conduct, unquote. According to this report, the officer was in a restroom stall when Craig sat down in the stall next to him, began tapping his right foot, touched his right foot to the left foot of the officer, and brushed his hand beneath the partition between them. And I I gather this is some sort of standard signal that takes place. And I'm sorry, at this juncture, I cannot help but (laughs) recall that classic Gary Larson Far Side cartoon which shows a public restroom in which one stall has a conventional pair of feet under it, whereas the adjoining stall appears to have unwrapping bandages. The caption being, It was an innocent mistake, but nevertheless, a moment later, Maurice found himself receiving the full brunt of the mummy's wrath. On that note, I think we need to get into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for making the trains run on time after Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez used a special seven-hour-long edition of his weekly radio show, Allo Presidente, to announce he's moving the nation's clocks forward a half hour. The change will make Venezuela more efficient, Chavez said. It's about the metabolic effect, where the human brain is conditioned by sunlight. It appears to Radio Parallax that Presidente Chavez may have been out in the Venezuelan sun a little too long. Although this correspondent did note with some amusement that a recent study published showed that people who set their clocks forward a few minutes do, indeed, get to their appointments on time. This is something I do, which Mr. McMillan has roundly criticized me for over the years. But... It works. Well, at least it works to set it a few minutes ahead. Whether Venezuelans setting the clock 30 minutes forward is going to mean the trains are going to run on time is quite another matter. All right, it was, on the other hand, a, a bad week last week for mood lighting. After a smitten pair of German teenagers decide to lose their virginities by candlelight, then had to flee nude off under the sidewalk after a fire broke out in the girls' parents' home. And lastly, it was an ugly week last week for Raging Against the Machine, with the recall from Japanese amusement arcades of Arm Spirit. This was an arm wrestling game after apparently three players broke their arms trying to beat it. Reportedly, a spokesman for the game's manufacturer theorized that some players, quote, get overexcited and twist their arms in unusual ways, unquote. And in a bonus item, which we're not sure is good, bad, or ugly, we would note that it was a something week for getting dumped after a study by clinical psychologists at Northwestern University concluded that people invariably overestimate how painful it will be to break up with a partner. Things can be a little rough initially, the study determined, but at the end of the day, it is just less bad than you thought said Professor Eli Finkel. And no, we're not sure what kind of breakups uh, Dr. Finkel's gone through, but uh, you can be the judge of how bad it is. And yeah, you know, sometimes it ain't so bad, and sometimes it is. Anyway, that's it for the good, the bad, and the ugly, and for this segment. 
I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll be back after a short break to talk with Lowell Bergman, former producer for CBS's 60 Minutes, as well as PBS's Frontline. <laughs> 